0: It's my privilege to be here with you this evening. Uh, Talk this evening is a bit different emphasis than I would usually do. As the pastor said, uh, my background is in space operations and astronomy, and I love talking about that, as I did this morning at the chapel, and we will do again next week for anybody who has time to attend. But there's other aspects of origins that are equally, if not perhaps even more, important. And tying on to what the pastor just said, human origins is a... An issue that is not merely a matter of science, it has implications. Where do we come from? Why are we here? If we are the outcome of random processes, that says one thing about why we are or actually aren't here. There's no particular reason for us to be here. On the other hand, if we were placed here by God, if mankind was created by God, as the Bible says, then that has implications as well. And it's, I think it's valuable to approach this from not even a deep biological perspective, but just looking at the processes that are claimed to account for us being here by secular scientists. And as Pastor said, I am an engineer. So that's the mindset I approach this with. Um, this may raise a question immediately in your minds. We asked an engineer to come communicate. Aren't they known for not being able to do that? Well, we'll see. Hopefully we can get by that. But you don't need to be a biochemist or A specialist biologist to understand the big picture in this whole question. Where are we from? Why are we here? And that is our topic here this evening. The Bible says God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So the Bible is quite explicit. The Lord created humankind directly. Of course, our society tells us this is not a valid explanation. We are told that this is grandpa. In a long, period of time since. Not our immediate grandpa, but certainly great, 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 great all the way back. We have ape-like ancestors in our family tree, or so we are told. Bible con- contrasts with this and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and humankind a few days later, but our society, as I said, rejects that notion. We are told that it is not a valid explanation for us being here. This is not a scientific approach. We are told Instead, science says something completely different. Science allegedly says, according to these claims, that life formed in a warm pond somewhere from non-living chemicals. Those chemicals got together and formed the first living organism. Then after millions of years of evolution, we eventually came about through a process similar to that. And does this really match what we see? Well, little diagrams like this are perhaps interesting and amusing in some of the things they portray. But is this actually the truth? Does human origins have this process behind it? Well, we know from the scripture, of course, that this isn't true. The Bible offers truth on this. And we're going to talk about each stage of this process from the secular perspective and see if it actually matches what science shows us. The first stage of this process is the origin of life. Can life actually form from non-living chemicals? Actually, it can't. There's a lot of chemical and other reasons for that being the case. I'm not going to spend time on that this evening, though, because it is a fairly technical discussion. I want to focus instead on what happens after life exists. I'm sure you're familiar with Charles Darwin and his book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. We are told that Darwin pioneered the correct way of looking at the origin of species and other categories of life today, that once life was formed, neo-Darwinian processes supposedly brought into existence everything that we see today through various means. So how did this process supposedly work? Well, neo-Darwinism says that mutations plus natural selection can account for all that we see. And by the way, uh, you may notice I'm saying neo-Darwinism. Darwin didn't understand genetics, and I'm not criticizing him for that because nobody in his day did Uh, certainly by a modern understanding. So the neo-Darwinian synthesis is a combination of Darwin's original ideas plus modern ideas about genetics. Uh, Just to be brief, I'll probably say Darwinism quite a few times rather than neo-Darwinism, but that's what I'm referring to. So the neo-Darwinian process is based on mutations plus natural selection. And this is supposedly the engine for evolution. So what do we mean by that? Well, what are mutations? Well, you're probably familiar with the idea that we, our, our cells in our body contain DNA. DNA is a library of instructions that instructs the cell how to make various proteins. And proteins are little molecular machines that do all sorts of wonderful things in the cell. We'll talk more about that later. But the DNA is subject to change. You can have mutations which actually changes the DNA. And if DNA gets changed, and DNA contains instructions for making proteins, then the instructions can change as well. And we are told that this is the source of variation by which evolution is powered, and then natural selection chooses from the variations and accounts for changes in populations. So here's a little illustration of that. We have an organism. This organism has offspring, and mutation creates variations among those offspring. Natural selection selects against the unfavorable mutations, the ones that degrade the offspring's ability to reproduce. So the ones with unfavorable mutations tend to not reproduce as much. So subsequent generations, therefore, are going to reflect the more favorable mutations. And again, as those offspring reproduce, we have more variation. The favorable mutations are more likely to survive because of natural selection, and reproduce as well. And so over time, you can see that you wind up with organisms that are much different than the ancestral ones were, or so it is claimed. We're going to talk more about this here shortly. Now, a lot of this is true, and some of it's even common sense. I mean, certainly mutations can be harmful, and natural selection will indeed select out harmful mutations. In fact, it doesn't really have to, in a sense, because uh, in a lot of cases, because a lot of mutations are lethal. The organism doesn't survive long enough to reproduce. So harmful mutations can be selected against and then removed from the genetic pool, if you will. But it's conceivable that some mutations could be potentially beneficial. For example, it's, and this is just a hypothetical example, let's say red hair made a person more attractive. It's conceivable, therefore, that people with red hair would tend to have more children than those who didn't, and so over time, the population would have a higher percentage of people with red hair. I gave this talk in church one time and a lady with red hair in the front row yelled out, amen, <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> so that's the claim. Mutations plus natural selection supposedly powers this process of evolution. And over long periods of time, you can get lots and lots of changes and substantially change the population that you're looking at. As this author said, time is in fact the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible probable and the probable virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Almost deifying time here, aren't they? So again, we're told, though, this is the process that accounts for the almost bewildering variety of life, that way back in deep time, and back in the past, life formed by itself, and then these processes of mutations plus natural selection produced all these wonderful creatures eventually ending in humankind today having evolved from a ape-like ancestor not that long ago I'll go excuse me the problem is none of this actually works and we're going to look at each of these 3 items in this list and show that what darwinism requires is not what actually happens in the real world so let's start with mutations think about it after life formed you had very simple life unicellular, one-cell organisms. Now today, of course, we have much more complex forms of life. So to go from microbes to man, you need a lot of information added to the genome, don't you? Because those previous organisms are much simpler, we're much more complex. All that additional information had to come from somewhere. If you don't want a designer involved, then you have to propose that all this information was added over time By mutations, because that's the secular scientist's only source of variation. Well, are mutations actually going to do that? Breaking this down a little bit further, evolution needs three things in order for this process to happen. Number one, you need lots of beneficial mutations, specifically mutations that provide benefits without introducing harmful attributes at the same time. Not only do they have to be beneficial, they also have to add new functions and new information to the genome, and all of this has to be produced at random. So evolution needs that. It also needs, for slightly harmful mutations, of which there are a lot, by the way, we'll talk about that here shortly, they need to be eliminated by natural selection, as do the very harmful ones. They, too, need to be eliminated by natural selection. So of these three major requirements for Darwinism to account for anything... How much of these actually withstand scrutiny? Well, the easy one we've already talked about. Very harmful mutations can indeed be screened out by natural selection. Uh, Some mutations are very detrimental to the organism's ability to reproduce. I'm showing you here some parakeets or budgies, as they're called elsewhere in the world. Uh, As an example of this, budgies suffer from something called a feather duster mutation, where they have uncontrolled growth of feathers. This makes it very difficult for the creatures to live and certainly to reproduce, So these mutations will tend to be removed fairly quickly from their genetic pool. So indeed, very harmful mutations will actually be eliminated by natural selection. That's fairly clear. What about these other two requirements? What about beneficial mutations? Do we see mutations that are beneficial and also not harmful? Well, this is a lot more difficult to show from the secular scientist's perspective Genetic information tends to be multifaceted in that the same portion of DNA will be read multiple times in different ways to produce different proteins. That means when you change the information to change one aspect uh, of a protein that's being produced, you will also affect others, and it tends to be harmful. So as an example, the the mutations that produce red hair, whether or not they're beneficial, as I uh, proposed a moment ago, they are definitely harmful. For example, red hair increases the risk of melanoma. It's equal to 21 years of additional sun exposure to people who have it. So even if this mutation did make it more likely for them to find a mate, at the same time, it's harming their ability to survive. And there's a lot of examples of this. When you tweak DNA a little bit, you may get one small change in one aspect of an organism, but you'll also get a very large change in a completely unrelated aspect of that organism. Another example is sickle cell anemia. This is found uh, commonly in a few places of the world, typically where there's a high incidence of malaria. Now, sickle cell anemia actually is beneficial in those areas because it tends to protect people against malaria, which is why a lot of people there tend to have it. But it's still an overall loss of function. It's actually a disease in its own right. So this is an example of a mutation that's beneficial in one limited aspect, but still has harmful aspects to it, and is also reflecting a loss of information for the organism rather than a gain. We see this also in antibiotic resistance. You have probably heard that various bacteria or diseases are evolving resistance against many of our antibiotics. Well, that's true, but that's not because they're getting better. In many cases, it's actually because they're getting worse. So what do I mean by that? Well, in any population of bacteria, you're going to have a variety of characteristics due to a variety of mutations within that population. And a lot of our antibiotics will attack bacteria along specific pathways. So you might kill all the bacteria that uh, are ingesting and metabolizing a specific nutrient, for example. That's the pathway that the antibiotic attacks. Well, bacteria who have lost the ability to metabolize that nutrient because of a mutation will be immune to the antibiotic, won't it? So when you have a large population of bacteria, you introduce this antibiotic, it'll kill most of the normal ones, and it's only the ones with this otherwise harmful detrimental mutation that will survive. They then have no competition because all the other ones died, and so they will reproduce and the new population will have this resistance. But that's not a gain of information in this population, it's actually a loss of information. So we see lots of examples of this. So, many times you have things like this that are claimed to be proof of this overall Darwinian process of evolution, when it's actually the opposite of what evolution requires. As is this example here. You sometimes hear about these fish that dwell in caves that have lost their eyesight, and that's claimed to be evidence of evolution. Well, it is perhaps an example of natural selection, because there's a slight advantage to not having eyes when you don't need them. You know, in a dark cave, there's no light, so having eyes doesn't do you any good. And it actually does you a little bit of harm because it's an additional pathway for infection and other things. So it's beneficial for the fish to lose their eyes, but is that an example of onwards and upwards evolution? No, they're losing capabilities. They're losing these important traits. Nevertheless, you have otherwise respected sources like National Geographic claiming that this is an example of evolution going on when it's actually the opposite of what evolution requires. There's only one example recently that's been proposed for allegedly showing that things can gain characteristics. Uh, A few years ago, it was announced that bacteria, specific uh, species of bacteria, had evolved, quote-unquote, the ability to digest nylon downstream from a factory that was dumping it into a river or something. That's possibly an addition of function, which would be a very rare discovery, as we've said, but not necessarily the result of near Darwinian processes. People have pointed out that the odds of this capability evolving as a result, result of man, uh, random mutations would be 1 out of 10 to the 12 power so 1 with 12 zeros out of it 1 out of that number is the odds of this happening by chance it looks instead like the bacteria are programmed to adapt rapidly to their environment which is an ongoing area within uh, creation research by the way it is possible indeed to have rapid change within a population but not because of random processes be, but instead because the organisms are designed to adapt to their environment quickly. And that makes sense too, because, you know, think about early in the scripture when the Lord says, Be fruitful and multiply, it makes sense that, that animals and plants would have the ability to go fill new ecological niches quickly. But that's programming, that's design, that's not random processes. So getting back to our list here, we see that the idea that beneficial mutations without increasing harmful effects and also Adding new information to the genome at the same time and all being produced at random is not supported by what we see. So the overall driver for neo-Darwinian processes is lacking. Another important aspect of this often doesn't get spoken about, and that's the idea of slightly harmful mutations. we think of mutations as being bad things, and they usually are. Sometimes they're neutral to slightly neutral, though. And it turns out that natural selection isn't precise enough to select against those neutral to slightly harmful ones. So they will actually accumulate in the genome over time. And this is actually very bad for the idea of neo-Darwinian evolution. I think it was Dr. Dwayne Gish who first said, a lizard is a biological machine for making more lizards. And it's very well designed to do that. Now, if you start changing the instructions and tinkering with the programming, so to speak, you're probably not going to get a better lizard, lizard as a result. You're going to get one that doesn't operate as well. And although the very harmful mutations can be removed, as we said, turns out natural selection can't eliminate the ones that are only slightly harmful and they will accumulate over time. This is called genetic load. And a scientist named Dr. John Sanford has done a lot of work on this and wrote a whole book on the subject. He's even studied this in the human population and it turns out that we aren't evolving upwards and onwards and getting better. We're actually getting worse over time because of this. On average, every generation of people has about 60 to 100 mutations compared to their parents. So we aren't getting better, we're getting worse. And if you do the math on this, he he actually built a a simulator um, that's called Mendel's Accountant. You can go tinker with it if you like, it's online. You can change various variables like uh, the size of the initial population, how many children per couple, and all these other sorts of things you can't actually show that this will ever stop. You can slow it down a bit depending on the numbers you use in the simulation. But regardless of the numbers that are chosen, we are getting worse instead of better. And eventually our genetic viability is going to fall off a cliff, so to speak. We don't know when that will be because the numbers aren't uh, precise enough. But point is, even within the human population, we're going the opposite direction from what Neo-Darwinism would need. Because of these slightly harmful mutations that are accumulating over time rather than being eliminated. So you see, of the three requirements that Neo-Darwinism needs, one of them, the common sense one, exists certainly, but the other two do not. And this is the primary mechanism for variation within this process, this proposed source of variation in life today. So mutations don't work. Doesn't provide what Neo-Darwinism needs. What about the other two requirements? Well, natural selection, in many cases, actually works against this idea as well. Now, certainly, it'll remove harmful mutations and such, as we already said. But to account for many situations where the onward and upward progress, so to speak, needs to be made, natural selection would actually prevent that from happening. One of my favorite examples is this pteranodon, a flying reptile often found in the rocks buried next to dinosaurs. Now, kind of hard to see in this picture here, but he had a very unusual wing structure. And by the way, this thing's the size of a small airplane. Think like a Cessna. So these could be very big creatures. And we know they're very successful creatures because we find lots of fossils and tracks and such in the geological record. But he had a very unusual wing structure. You see his fingers here. The leading edge of his wing is actually his pinky finger. And then the wing is this long flap of skin. He's also very well designed for flying. His bones were light... You can see his legs weren't really useful for walking so much, but very well designed as a flying creature, And again, very successful in doing that. Now we are told that this creature evolved from a land-dwelling dinosaur, creature running around on all fours. So you started from a four-legged land dinosaur that had offspring that were slightly different than the parents, who had offspring that were slightly different than the parents, who had offspring that were slightly different, different etc., until eventually you reached this guy. So you start with a land creature, you end with a flying creature, and you had little steps along the way, according to this story. So at some point you went from a a parent that could not fly to an offspring that could. So for the first time in this whole process, children were born, so to speak, that could fly for the first time. Think about the stages one or two before them, the generations right before them. What did they look like? Well, they weren't the four-legged land creatures anymore. They had evolved pinky fingers that are like six feet long, dragging along on the ground behind them, with big flaps of skin that aren't wings quite yet, stubby little legs that mean you can't get around very well because you're evolving into a flying creature, right? Now along comes a hungry predator looking for lunch. Who gets eaten and who gets away? Well, the one that didn't evolve is the one that gets away, and the one that gets turned into lunch is the one that isn't quite here yet, right? You you see my point. This creature is very well adapted for flying, very well designed to do so. The land-dwelling dinosaur was very effective at doing that. But the ones in the middle would not be as good at surviving. So the survival of the fittest would actually prevent evolution from happening, right? On a large scale. We see some interesting examples even in the world today. One of my favorites here is butterflies. So butterflies have a really interesting life cycle. They start as little eggs, and then the eggs hatch and produce caterpillars. Then the caterpillars will spin a chrysalis, and inside the chrysalis, as we know, the caterpillar turns into a butterfly, which then emerges and does its butterfly thing. Now, a a lot of us don't know, though, what happens inside the chrysalis. A caterpillar goes in and a butterfly comes out. How do you go from a caterpillar to a butterfly? It's actually a fascinating process. The caterpillar releases enzymes that dissolves its body tissues. It turns itself into soup. So you have a chrysalis full of goo for a while. And then the goo forms into a butterfly. Think about that process. Is it possible to produce this step-by-step through this gradual evolutionary procedure. Because there's a variety of mutations that all have to be in place for this to happen from some ancestral creature, right? I mean think about all the changes that are necessary. So you have a creature that evolves the ability to spin a chrysalis, but nothing else is in place yet. So it just spins a chrysalis and then dies inside and nothing else happens. This evolution doesn't happen. Or it spins a chrysalis produces the enzyme to dissolve its body into soup, but the soup can't make a butterfly yet, so again, it dies. You understand my point here. There's such major discontinuities between the alleged ancestors and what we see in place today that even conceiving of this process being possible, it doesn't work. An analogy I like to use here is if I take a chicken, live chicken running around, grab the chicken, and I put it into a blender, I make a chicken smoothie, Can I make a chicken out of that smoothie? No, right? But I should be able to, according to this logic, right? I mean, it has everything you need to make a chicken. It's got the correct ratio of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. It's got all the minerals for the beak and the feathers and the feet. I mean, it's a liquid chicken, but it's not going to form into a chicken anytime soon. This is actually even more amazing than that, because a caterpillar turns itself into something completely different. If I put a caterpillar into a blender, uh, I wouldn't be able to make a butterfly from the product of that, but yet the Lord did. So, how do we account for something like this, given that natural selection is apparently a real thing, and, uh, at least in a limited sense? Natural selection would prevent creatures from evolving such complicated life cycles as the butterfly has. And there's lots of other examples we could talk about. I don't want to belabor the point, though, so I'll move on. Just pointing out that survival of the fittest, quote unquote, will, in many cases, prevent. Creatures from evolving all these various capabilities. What about the last stage of this process? How much time is available for neo Darwinian processes to have taken place? We are told evolution is a process that occurred over millions of years. And this is not a geology talk, so we're not going to talk much detail about the idea of the millions of years. But I will touch on it briefly, though, because this is a common question people have. Are there really millions of years recorded in Earth history? Well, the common question is, uh, we have these radiometric dating methods that tell us these rocks are millions, or in some cases even billions of years old. Do those methods work? Well, they don't actually work to accurately produce ages. The first part of the process where you measure the composition of rocks, that works just fine, because that's science in the laboratory. But converting those numbers into an age requires assumptions, and the assumptions are demonstrably wrong because they produce incorrect results. One example of this is Mount St. Helens in Washington State, close to where I live, by the way. And if you ever come to Washington State, you have to go see Mount St. Helens. It's amazing. Mountain erupted 40-some-odd years ago at this point. Subsequent to the eruption in the crater, this lava dome here formed. Now, a geologist went up to the crater. You need a special permit to do this, of course. Sent some graduate students down to get samples of the lava dome (laughs) because that's what graduate students are for took samples, sent them back to the laboratory, and submitted it for potassium to argon dating. Now, potassium to argon is specifically supposed to tell you how long it's been since lava hardened into stone. And the lab said that this hardening process had taken place 340,000 to 2.8 million years ago. The problem was that the rock was about 12 years old, give or take, at the time he took the sample. Now, the the lab was able to precisely measure the ratio of potassium to argon in the rock today. But the assumptions that are used to convert the measurement into an age, in this case, produced an age that is clearly incorrect because we know when this rock formed. In fact, we also know what what bad assumption is is being used in this case. Um, Without going into details, I'll just point out all the various radiometric dating methods that produce the millions or even the billions of years for rock ages are all making assumptions and some of which are unjustified, which means that the ages they produce are wrong. And we have some more concrete examples of this. For example, dinosaurs supposedly died out 65 million years ago. Is this congruent with what we see in the fossil record? Well, no, it's not. As an example of this, this is the Hell Creek Formation in Montana. And a few years back, a paleontologist named Dr. Mary Schweitzer was excavating a tyrannosaur fossil, specifically a femur bone Took the bone back to the lab, dissolved away the outer bone matrix, and inside of this tyrannosaur leg bone found soft, stretchy tissue, soft tissue inside of dinosaur bones. And I'm sure some of you have heard of this already because this has been talked about in the creation movement quite a bit. But not only soft, stretchy tissue, blood vessels and blood cells. This is dinosaur blood in the laboratory. Is this going to last millions of years? No, it's not. Furthermore, some scientists have been taking samples of dinosaur tissue and sending it into the labs for radiocarbon dating. So carbon-14 is an element that will decay fairly quickly. You've heard of carbon dating, I'm sure. Um, even when carbon dating works correctly, it's only going to give you an age of the thousands of years because carbon goes away too fast for an older sample to have any left in it. Turns out that if a sample has carbon-14 within it, it has to be less than 100,000 years old. And it also turns out that dinosaur tissue has been found to have carbon-14 within it, meaning that these dinosaur fossils are only thousands of years old, not millions. Same argument for dinosaur DNA. DNA fragments are being found in dinosaurs now. It's been there all along, but no one thought to look, because why would you bother looking? DNA can't last for millions of years, and we know these creatures died millions of years ago. Well, it turns out when you don't make that assumption, when you look anyway, you find that there are DNA fragments in dinosaur tissues, and DNA degrades very quickly. Even if you freeze it and seal it off from oxygen, the half-life is still in the the few hundreds of years. It all goes away in a fairly short period of time. But there are still some fragments left in some of these dinosaur fossils. A more recent discovery, I think this one's kind of fun, um, looking at triceratops bone under a, a microscope... Even an electron microscope has been revealing some interesting things for the scientists doing this. This is a nerve fragment, nerve tissue, from inside of a dinosaur fossil, a triceratops bone, which is amazing enough already because nerve tissue shouldn't last millions of years. But you see this cross-hatching pattern surrounding this tissue. That's a mesh, if you will, of collagen that maintains the structure of it. And collagen is a biological material that also degrades very quickly. Shouldn't be there if this creature died millions of years ago. Looking at bone samples from a triceratops under a microscope reveals some other interesting things. You see this bone is very porous. It has a lot of holes in it. This particular creature, all of these pores, have coagulated blood, blood clots in the pores. turns out this is what happens when an animal drowns. There's a specific chemical cascade that kicks off and you have this form of coagulation inside of the tissue. So this creature apparently drowned when it died as a means of death. But more interesting than this, a close-up reveals something interesting. The, the scientist who collected this uh, has a bit different approach than most people. Most people, when they gather a bone, they'll wrap it in plaster and do some other things just to try to preserve it and bring it back to the lab. He actually sprays fixative chemicals on it first to preserve exactly what is there when the creature's bone is first uncovered. And now under the microscope, as a result of doing this, he is finding, in this case, nematodes that were eating the coagulated blood. Worms, live worms, eating blood clots inside of dinosaur bone. Does that look like millions of years old to you? No, it doesn't. More examples of this we could give, but my point for this morning, even if the millions of years were available, which we've just seen they are not, they still would not be enough for Neo-Darwinian processes to explain us being here because the math doesn't work. If mutations are the source of variation within a population, well, mutations actually spread very slowly if you think about it. For example, let's say tomorrow morning at a hospital in Chicago, some child is born that has several mutations that are going to make him a genetic Superman when he gets older. He's going to be more intelligent and more physically fit and whatever. At that moment... How many humans in the population have this wonderful new set of mutations? Well, just one, right? What percentage of the human population has the mutations? One out of 7 point whatever billion people are in the world today. Now let's say this child marries and let's say his mutations are dominant rather than recessive, so all of his children are going to get it and express it. Well, now his children, let's say he has five children. Now there's five people of reproductive age in the human population, but in the time it took for him to, to bear and raise the five children, the human population has grown further, right? So now there's five people out of eight billion, eight point something billion in the world have this mutation. Well, they all have children of their own, but by the time those children are old enough to be reproductive age, the human population has grown further. You understand my point, I hope. The rate at which a mutation spreads through a population is very slow, And if you do the math on this, even over 10 million years, which is the time period from our alleged common ancestor with apes today, that can only account for 0.02% of the variation in the human genome that's necessary to account for the differences. So you see the problem here. Even with 10 million years to work with, you can't even account for 1% of the genetic variation necessary to account for humans being here because mutations take too long to spread through a population, even setting aside all of the other issues that we talked about. So we saw that mutations don't work the way neo-Darwinism requires. Natural selection in many cases will prevent evolution in an onwards and upwards fashion. And now we also see that lots of time is not only not available, but even if it were available, it wouldn't matter because it wouldn't be enough. So having discredited neo-Darwinism then, what does the Bible say about human origins? Well, the Bible tells us that humanity started with one man and one woman about 6,000 years ago. And that accounts for all the people that we see today. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. Now, when you say this to someone, you'll often immediately get the question, wait a minute, what about, what about the races? How could all of the races have come from just one couple not that long ago? Well, the answer is, is actually not any races. There's only one race, the human race. We are all descended from Adam and Eve. And sometimes when I say that, I can see the reaction in people's faces like, wait a minute, there's a white guy at the front of the room telling us that there's no such thing as white guys that we're all the same race. Well, that's true because I'm not actually a white guy. This is white. I'm not white. I'm just light brown. So there's light brown people. There's medium brown people. There's darker brown people. But we're all people. We're all just various shades of brown. And we're all just one race, ultimately. No such thing are white or black. Everyone is just different shades of brown. And indeed, if Adam and Eve started as a middle shade of brown, for example, that could account for all the variation we see in people today. I've actually heard people argue about whether Adam and Eve were quote-unquote white or black. And again, there is no white or black. Uh, But the answer is neither. They were probably middle brown because from a middle brown couple, you can produce all the variations of skin tone and other ethnic characteristics that we see in the world today. So given that that were true, that means... Subsequent generations would maintain this genetic diversity until the Tower of Babel happened, where the Bible tells us people were scattered in different directions, and that is actually the source of ethnic variation in the world today. Because think about it, if everyone was in the Middle East and then scattered in different directions all at the same time, you'd have smaller populations going to different parts of the world from there, different skin tones would tend to survive better in different places of the world. For example, if you went go into northern Europe, there's not as much sun as in the southern parts of the world. So if you have a darker skin tone, you are more subject to vitamin D deficiency, and rickets is a disease from that, which is can be debilitating. And other harmful effects. So people with darker skin tones would tend to struggle in northern Europe, whereas people with lighter skin tones are going to absorb more solar radiation and so on. And so northern Europeans tend to have skin color that looks like this. The opposite is true in a place like Africa. People with skin like this in Africa don't do as well because we're more subject to skin cancer, which I've had for that for that matter. Whereas people with darker skin tones are protected against it. So, lighter-skinned people are going to tend to flourish in some parts of the world where darker-skinned people are going to flourish in other parts of the world. You also have um the ability to concentrate genetic characteristics in a smaller population. Basically when inbreeding happens, it's very uh very easy for traits to be lost, and certain genes concentrated in the population until everyone has them. So put all that together means that from the initial variation and diversity that we had of ethnic characteristics, today we're all separated out into different groups. Due to inbreeding, uh, a lot of the variability has been lost within populations. So lighter-skinned people tend to have lighter-skinned babies, and medium-skinned people have medium-skinned babies, and darker-skinned people have darker-skinned babies, and that's where we are today. As a, as a group, we have lost the diversity. We tend to be concentrated now into smaller subpopulations. But take all that away, what happens when people of different ethnic backgrounds get together and have children? Well, that original diversity can be restored. As an example, this couple has ethnic diversity on both sides of their family, and they had a pair of twin baby girls that, as you can see, look very different from each other. But again, twins. As they get older, you see that as well. And this family was not unique. There's other examples of this as well. This family had a pair of baby girls who were twins, and then a second pair of twin girls who looked similar. So this shows us that the ethnic variability that we see in the world today is not a big deal. I mean, we're all people. Ultimately, we're only one human race, and if you think about it, this is what the Bible says anyway, because we're all descended from Noah, which means what? We're all family. We're all cousins. We all share the same great, 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 add a few greats, grandfather way back then, 4,000 plus years ago. So some of us are close cousins and some of us are distant cousins, but we are all cousins nonetheless. And I think, I think that's really amazing. I mean, many of you in this room I've never met, you've the first time you've ever seen me, yet you can call me cousin and be correct in doing so because we're all related. You can go to any country in the world, in any continent in the world, see someone there who may look very different than you, but still call them cousin because that's indeed what they are. And how different would human history be if everyone acknowledged that the Bible is true and that this is the situation? I mean, how much oppression and violence and warfare and bloodshed has been based on this notion that, well, there's us versus them. But the Bible says there is no them. It's only us. Because we're all family. We're all related. What about design within even our very bodies themselves? Psalm 139 says, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. We could have multiple presentations just on this one subject alone, the amazing complexity, bewildering complexity, some of which we don't even understand yet, inside even every cell of our body. As one example of this, this is an animation from Harvard University which is hardly known as a hotbed of creationist research, as you can imagine, um, showing what's, what goes on inside a single white blood cell. So you're seeing white blood cells rolling along inside a blood vessel. It adheres to the inside of the, uh, the blood vessel wall by proteins that act, in a sense, similar to Velcro, where they adhere to each other, but then they also release to allow the cell to roll along. And what we're looking at here is what happens inside the cell as it is seeking out an area of inflammation inside the body that it's going to go fight, because that's what white blood cells are for. And without going into details about this, um, because again, the complexity is bewildering, we're now going down inside of the cell. We see that the cell builds structures for various purposes inside of itself. It does that by assembling proteins. This process uh, in the animation is oversimplified a little bit because it just shows stuff getting together. I mean, the cell actually builds things though, a little more complicated than what's being shown here. But it builds these structures as needed, and then when they're not needed, severs them, breaks the pieces apart and recycles them for use elsewhere. The cell is very efficient in all that it does. Uh, what we're seeing here is a microtubule that is built and disassembled as needed. Microtubules are used as little bridges or highways, if you will, for these things. This is called a motor protein. This is how the cell, transports things around inside of itself it assembles the vacuoles, those uh, large bag of proteins, if you will, to move around and travels on those microtubules. What we're seeing here is RNA that's come out of the nucleus of the cell. It was, uh, uh, the information on DNA inside the nucleus was copied onto RNA, which is then read, and the instructions are used to build proteins in various ways. Proteins are, we've all heard the word protein, but Inside of cell, proteins are molecular machines. Each one has a unique structure and a unique purpose. Again, bewildering complexity in a lot of this. I'm skimming a lot of, skipping over a lot of details. But everything you see in this animation is actually going on inside of your body right now. Even this little guy, which is kind of fun. The only thing that the animators did for the purposes of this animation is to move things farther apart to make them more visible in the animation. But everything else shown is actually going on. So the motor protein has reached the outer membrane, it releases its cargo of proteins, which then assemble on these raft structures. And again, I'm skipping over a lot of detail. For that matter, the full version of this video is actually eight minutes long. Uh, the narration of it, every other word is multisyllable. <laughs> Very complicated things going on here. But all of this was necessary just so the white blood cell could stop and immediately then disassembles all of the structures inside of itself so it can slip through this juncture of other cells and go fight the inflammation that it just received the chemical signal for. So again, that's the short version of a much longer video. You see the levels of complexity of what's going on even inside our cells that, of course, we're all unaware of for the most part. And scientists are still trying to figure out a lot of what is going on. And in some of those structures, the organelles and whatever, we know what it does. We don't know how it does it. So a fascinating area of research. Even this alone reflects multiple generations of researchers trying to understand what's going on in there. But you understand my point. Bewildering complexity, molecular machines, factories, all of this other stuff going on inside of our bodies. One last thing I want to talk about is getting back into genetics. The idea that we receive genetic information from our parents. We can actually use that to reveal some things about our ancestry. For example, in our nuclei, our nuclei of our cells, you're probably aware that we have DNA. And that DNA comes from our parents, right? We inherit uh, genetic information from both sides of our family. Turns out we also have some DNA in our mitochondria, which are little organelles inside of our cells, the little power plants of the cell, if you will. Mitochondrial DNA does not come from our parents. It only comes from our mother because the egg has the mitochondria, not the sperm. So you got your mitochondrial DNA only from your mother. Where did she get hers from? Well, from her mother. Who got it from her mother and so on. Turns out there are slight variations in mitochondrial DNA across human populations. And people have been taking samples of genetic material from folks all over the world and assembling them into vast databases and figuring out that we can actually reconstruct mitochondrial DNA from previous generations of women. What do I mean by that? Well... Uh, I use an analogy here of the biblical text. If we have a passage in the Bible that all the ancient manuscripts agree on what it says, except for a small group of manuscripts, let's say in Eastern Turkey somewhere, that has a, a textual variation, then we can conclude that the original had what all the, the manuscripts have and that a couple of generations ago, some scribe in Eastern Turkey made a copying error. And so the copies made from that manuscript are the ones we have today reflecting the differences. My point is, though, by looking at all of the examples, we can know what previous generations actually had. We recognize this was an error. The original didn't have that. And so we can figure out what the original did have. Scientists are doing this with mitochondrial DNA. There are small clusters of mutations found in populations. We can recognize, well, okay, so two generations ago, a woman had this particular mutation in her mitochondrial DNA. Her descendants today now have it, but before her, generations before her, did not have that. So from doing this, they're able to reconstruct generation after generation going into the past of mitochondrial DNA. And by doing that, we can figure out how many female ancestors everyone on Earth have. So the question is, how many ultimate female ancestors do all of us have? Well, the evolutionary story says we came out of Africa as a large population long time ago, you would expect then there to be a substantial number of ultimate ancestors for us all. How many ultimate ancestors, those female ancestors, do we have according to the Bible? Of course, just one. Eve is the mother of all of us, right? According to mitochondrial DNA, how many, ancestors, how many female ancestors do we all have? And the answer is one. Mitochondrial DNA has confirmed that everybody on the planet today is descended from one woman, how long ago did she live? Well, how would you figure that out? You would look at the number of mutations that each of us has on average and figure out how long it would take for that number of mutations to accumulate in the population. And the answer is about 150 to 200 generations. So six to 10,000 years-ish. Not very long and totally consistent with the biblical story. And I think this is amazing. Anyway, think, think about this. We know what Eve's mitochondrial DNA was. I mean, I don't know. Just the concept of that blows me away. Similar things have been done with Y chromosomes. Every male on the planet has a Y chromosome. Got it from his father, who got it from his father, etc. Same logic applies. When you compare Y chromosomes across human populations, how many ultimate male ancestors are there for everyone? One. How long ago did he live? Again, 150 to 200 generations, more or less. By the way, the evolutionists have named the woman that all of us are descended from, mitochondrial Eve. They think they're being you know, tongue in cheek. Uh, And the male ancestor that everyone shares is called Y-chromosomal Adam. So they think they're using Adam and Eve in kind of a funny sense, but it's, it's reflective of the truth. Science confirms that we all come from one man and one woman 150 to 200 generations ago. There's more to the story than this, by the way. We could actually talk about this for quite a while. Because when you look at the clusters of mutations in mitochondrial DNA, for example, not only are we all descended from one woman ultimately, but sometime after her, there were three women that all of us descend from. What does that remind you of? The wives of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Bible says that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, for some of us, it's easier to count those than others. (laughs) But... Every hair in your head is made of cells. All of those cells contain DNA. All that DNA confirms that you are a descendant of Adam and Eve. I think that's really cool. So, Neo-Darwinian processes are not responsible for our origins. We saw that you need mutations. You need beneficial mutations that add information, do not introduce harmful characteristics. We saw that. Biology does not supply those. That's not what we see in the world around us. We saw that natural selection will in many cases prevent onwards and upwards evolution from happening. We also saw that mutation, uh, excuse me, Darwinism requires lots of time. Not only is that not available because the millions of years aren't actually part of Earth's history, but even if they were available, that wouldn't help this process either because the process doesn't work. We also saw evidence for amazing design. And again, we could do multiple presentations just on this alone and evidence from genetics, that indeed we do come from one man and one woman about 6,000 years old, 6,000 years ago, excuse me. And we are all indeed one human race, as the Bible says. Psalm 139 says, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. We live in a time where never before in history have we been able to appreciate the breathtaking complexity and design built into our very bodies, into each cell of our bodies. And it's really a privilege to be able to explore this. Um, Unfortunately, humanity and its wickedness will try to come up with ways to deny God in all of this. But if you look at science accurately and completely, we see that indeed, we are not the product of random forces operating over long periods of time. We are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. It's been my privilege to speak before you this evening. And thank you again for having me here. Thanks. Thank you.